Uh, welcome back to Big, Hairy, Audacious Questions. Uh, we're in this series. Back in June, I asked you to submit um, some questions that not only you struggle with, but uh, people sitting near you struggle with, and people in churches all over the place struggle with, and people who wouldn't go to church no matter what, they struggle with it. They struggle with these questions for years, and people for hundreds of years have struggled with some of these questions that you submitted. These are some of the toughest questions that can be directed toward Christianity. And so we're really glad that you're here today. We're glad that you've stuck out this series. This is part eight today. Uh, if you're listening to a CD or the podcast, I just want to say thank you so much for being intentional about staying engaged with this series. I just want to remind you that there's a downloadable summary of the notes from each message on the media player on our website. So if you're interested in seeing that, and a few weeks ago we started experimenting with posting the summary notes on our Facebook page as the service is starting. So if you have your mobile device, and since you're surfing Facebook anyway, I know who you are, uh, you can click on the image there on the church Facebook page and follow along on the notes if that helps you. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, just don't worry about it. It's okay for you to use your mobile device today. I'm giving you permission. So if you want to take quotes from the message and post it on your Facebook and tag the church in it or whatever, that's all, that's all fine. So far, we've covered seven of your big, hairy, audacious questions. And the good news about the series is that we have been able to answer every question definitively in about 48 minutes. So once and for all, the questions have been answered. These questions that have plagued humanity and Christians and church people and non-church people for hundreds of years, we've been able to answer them in 48 short minutes uh, in this series. So that's been great. That's not true at all. If you've been with us the whole time, you know that's not even close to true. What we, uh, what we uh, get to do is we get to address it. And we've been able to acknowledge and explore and address these big questions that people have had, some cases, for hundreds of years. So uh, what we've done today is we've saved uh, perhaps uh, the hardest question, uh, certainly one of the most perpetual questions that, that I hear till uh, near the end of this series. So a few months ago, I asked you to give me input, and, uh, and we were getting ready for this series, and I just thought, I'm going to try this. This is a little scary. I have no idea what... I've never let anybody else determine what, I'm, <laughs> what topics I'm going to cover. Uh, and uh, I got about 40 different questions, or 40 questions, and this one I saw several times in different, kind of worded differently, um, but the essence uh, was the same. If you're not a Christian, this is probably the biggest uh, question you have about God and Christianity. If you're a Christian today, but you can remember back before you were a Christian, this was probably a big question for you then. And even if you are a Christian today, chances are this is still a big one for you. So no matter where you are on that spectrum, um, if I, if maybe you ask any chance you get because uh, you're just looking for clarity and you're really hoping that you know in your conversations about faith with your friends and your family and your coworkers and family members you're just hoping that maybe you'll get some clarity it's why you keep wanting you keep bringing this question up or maybe maybe you're sitting there thinking you hope no one brings it up because even though you got past it enough to become a christian you're not sure you can explain it uh, in a satisfactory way so the question is this. It's a question that you ask. It's a question your non-believing friends ask. It's a question everybody asks at some point, and then here's the question, that if God is so good, why do bad things happen? You've asked this question personally. Some of you are asking it right now. It's almost always the first response to suffering. If God is so good, why do bad things happen? This is how it shows up. <clears throat> If something bad happens to you, maybe you get diagnosed with something, 
Maybe you, get a, you lose a job. Maybe you experience a financial setback. Maybe things are falling apart in your family. But when you're struggling, you ask the question, and it starts to show up in different ways. If God is so good, why do bad things happen? And God, why me? I mean, isn't that your immediate response as soon as you begin to experience something that might be negative or something that you interpret to be suffering or trials? It's like, God, why? Or more specifically, God, why me? Why did this happen? Why did this happen to me? Why did I not get that job I wanted? Why did I end up in this job? Why do I have so many relational problems? Why do I struggle so much with this addiction? Why are things always headed south for me financially? Why can I never get caught up? Why am I always in over my head? Why am I struggling, always struggling with my health? And some of you, the way you look at your life, that you think that there has been a disproportionate amount of suffering in your life. And in a few cases, because I know a lot of your stories, in a few cases, people very, I would say you might be right that there's been a disproportionate amount of suffering. Because maybe people that you have been very close to, people you love very much, have struggled with you know, heart disease and cancer or whatever, and they've died. And you look at the sadness around you, and the only question you know how to ask, and it's the first question, it's a lingering question, Why? Why do these things happen? And why did it happen to me? And then as that question goes deeper and as you wrestle with it, it's like, God, if you're even up there, if you're good because the Bible suggests that you're good, then why? Why suffering? Why do bad things happen? And although it's a little bit simplistic, I want to break the down the bad, I want to break down the bad things that have happened to you and the bad things that have happened to so many people that you know and love, and I want to break them down into two categories. The first category is what I would call, explain, uh, un, I'm going to call it unexplainable, okay? First of all, I know that unexplainable is not the best word here. I finished eighth grade. I know what the word should be. I know the better word is actually inexplicable, but inexplicable is a word that we tend to use when we're writing. We don't use it much in conversation, and this is a conversation even though it's only one way, and I want it to be more conversational in tone, so I'm going to use a more commonly conversational word, unexplainable. Just want to make sure you know that I know my grammar. Okay, so unexplainable. Got my bases covered. So, in other words... With unexplainable things, there is no cause and effect. It's not like you were irresponsible and you buried yourself in debt and you got wiped out financially. It's not like that. It's not like you were so angry and judgmental and lazy and you don't have good, healthy relationships. It's not that. It's not like you smoked cigarettes for 30 years and now you're paying the price in your body. It's not that either. Those things don't fit under this category. It's like you took good care of your body and you still got cancer. It's like someone you know and love who was very young died. Those things are unexplainable. And some of you, when you look at your life, you would say that it is characterized by a lot of unexplainable struggles and setbacks and suffering. I can't come up with an explanation. No one seems to know why it's happening. You know, when someone you you love is injured or killed through some random accident where there's no explanation, maybe it's a natural catastrophe and there's no possible way to escape it or explain it. Oh, you could, I mean, you could explain it, you know, because the, the presence of updrafts and downdrafts and a thunderstorm result in the tilting of the wind shear to form an upright vortex and a tornado is formed and then it touches down. We know all that scientifically, but why? Why did she get sick? Why did he die? Why in that moment? It's just unexplainable. And as much as we search for explanations, you just can't trace it out. That's one kind of bad thing that happens. The other category, and I think that is true of, for most of us, if not all of us, and these are things that we would say are explainable. They have an explanation. 
the challenge with, with this is that when I'm looking for an explanation, most of the explanation, most of the time, the explanation is more invisible and elusive to me than it is to you. You see, if I'm the one dealing with, unex, with explainable circumstances, it's probably a mystery to me. Why is this happening to me? Why am I having these health issues? Why is my third marriage falling apart? And, and everyone around me is going, seriously, you can't see it? You don't know why? Let me tell you why. Let me sit you down and I'll tell you why. I got a lot of reasons why. Why am I struggling so much financially? And to the person asking this question, it's a mystery. But to the people who watch you make poor financial decisions one after another, it's not a mystery. It's cause and effect. It makes perfect sense when you're struggling to keep your head above water. Why can't I ever get along with the people at work? And everyone else at work is going, not out loud, of course, but they're like, I can tell you why it's so hard for you at work. I can tell you. Let me tell you exactly why. Because you're so unprofessional and you're so selfish and you're just a big jerk. That's why. So things that we struggle with, some of them are, are just explainable. And I know for me, and I know a lot of your stories, and I've had a chance to hear your stories, and in some cases I've walked with you through some really tough stuff and you've dealt with some serious stuff, some sickness, and you've experienced a loss of someone who is really close to you, a husband, a wife, a child, a parent. And I haven't experienced this stuff myself. Other than the loss of elderly grandparents, I haven't had to face that kind of loss. Some of you have had terrible, unexplainable suffering and loss. So I don't, I'm certainly not making light of this whole conversation at all. I understand it's where you live. For some of you, for most of us, most of the struggles in our lives have been self-inflicted, and it's totally explainable. You may not see it. You may not see it that way. But the people around you, it's crystal clear. They see it for what it is. So if God is so good, why do we live in a world where we experience explainable and unexplainable circumstances? Why can't things just roll out the way that we hope it will roll around? Because I prayed about it, after all. Maybe your question is more specific. Maybe you're wondering, why does God let bad things happen to children who are completely innocent? Why doesn't he protect them? Good question. Maybe you're wondering, do bad things have to happen to draw us closer to God? A lot of people think this way. We might touch on that. No matter how you phrase the question, most of us have struggled or still struggle with this question of, if God is good, why do bad things happen? And as we dig into this this morning, I'm borrowing heavily from a teacher and a pastor and author named Tim Keller. I know some of you have read Tim Keller's stuff. He's the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. He's written some incredible books. Anything you can read by Tim Keller, uh, you know, just kind of shut out all the distractions and get in a quiet place because it's going to blow your mind. But his writings on this subject are awesome. He's a genius. He's, uh, Tim Keller's in his 60s, so he's getting up there. And... Uh, and uh, <laughs> That was for Dwayne. Uh, and uh, <laughs> their, church is, their church is in three locations in Manhattan. And you know what, the demographic, what demographic makes up the majority of their congregation? Manhattanites in their 20s to 40s. People who didn't grow up in church, and they're flocking to Redeemer Presbyterian Church. And Keller is doing just a brilliant job of engaging and handling their big questions. And uh, we've benefited from that ministry through his writings, and I especially love what he has written about the question of suffering. So I just wanted to give credit where credit's due. Tim Keller says it this way, that when it comes to suffering, there are two common responses. One he characterizes as moralism, and the other he calls cynicism. And I know these sound like big conceptual things, but I promise you, you are familiar with both responses, and you've probably experienced both moralism and cynicism. So if you're one of those people 
who uh, knows people who are suffering, or you're trying to explain your own suffering, you've, you, I would dare to say you've definitely jumped into one or both of these categories at some point. Moralism, let's talk about that. Moralism basically says that there's some kind of cause and effect to everything. That if you do this, God should protect you. That if I do this, 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 and don't do this, that God should come through for me. And moralistic explanations of suffering look like this. Well, there must be some sin in your life then. God must be punishing you for something, that, something you did wrong at some point along the way. Ever had anyone tell you that? Do you ever smack them right in the face? Because that's okay. That's not a sin. Uh, <laughs> or, you know, you just need to get your life right, and you need to get back to church, and you need to get right with God. Sometimes that's why people come to church. It's why they come back to church. It's why they start coming to church in the first place. You know, well, my life is going so bad. Maybe if I start going to church, maybe God will come over to my side and things will start going better for me. Maybe some of you read your Bible with mixed motives. You know, I hope God's taking notice here. I'm reading my Bible every day. It should count for something, God. Moralism says basically that if I do this, God should do that. At the worst, it says, if I give, if I serve, if I sacrifice, then God is obligated to do and then fill in the blank. You know, keep me safe, keep my kids safe, keep my marriage intact, keep my finances in good shape. Bless me, God. Get me that job. Keep me from getting sick. God bless America. The more religious you are, and the longer you've been a Christian, the more likely it is that you search for a moralistic explanation for suffering. It's just our tendency. And even if you haven't said it out loud, you've thought it. Well, I know what the problem is. If she would stop doing this, and if he would start doing that, and if she would love God more, and if he would be in church more, that's moralism. It's like, God, I'm going to live a righteous life, and if I'm a good person, if I live a good life, and if I try really hard, and if my good outweighs the bad by a certain percentage, then, God, you are obligated to save me from suffering. That's how it works, God. That's moralism. And maybe you think this is true. I just want you to know that approach is not Christian. It's not biblical, and it's not how God operates. It's like, whoa, really? No wonder we get so disappointed with God and disillusioned with Christianity if we have those kinds of expectations. Oh, it's common. It's human. But it's not how God operates. It's not where the Bible lands on this. And if you're like, well, I thought that was kind of the whole purpose of, you know, good works and stuff. If I do such and such, then God will do whatever, you know, take care of me or whatever, and it'll all be good. No. Moralism is one response to suffering. The other is cynicism. You're probably familiar with cynicism. Cynicism says that if there's a God, he doesn't know or he doesn't care. Life is random. Bad things happen. Sometimes they happen to good people. Sometimes they happen to bad people. God doesn't seem to care one way or the other if there really is a God and there really is no explanation. So if you're one of those people looking for cause and effect, well, if I do this, God will do such and such. Oh, that doesn't work. Suffering is random. It just happens to whoever. It happened to happen to you. You know, too bad. Get over it. Move on. Cynics who believe that there is a God would say, well, God doesn't know or God doesn't care. Or God can't really prevent it anyway, so just deal with it the best you can. Moralism and cynicism are the two most dominant responses that a lot of us go to to try to explain suffering, which takes us back to the question. And the question we're trying to answer today is, if God is so good, why do bad things happen? As you know, some of you love this and some of you don't. 
uh, each week in this series, we've been answering every big, hairy, audacious question with another question. So the question in response to today's big, hairy question is this. What if suffering is the shadow side of freedom? What if suffering is the shadow side of freedom? And you're like, what? Did you just change the subject? What, does this have anything to do with what you've been talking about? I might have changed the subject. Oh, it's my prerogative. No, I'm just kidding. It has, it has everything to do with what we're talking about. So stay with me. There is something inside God. There is something inside you. And the scripture reveals this. That tells us, and I, I don't think you even need to read the Bible to understand this. God just planted this in us. That freedom is essential. That as humans, it is somehow embedded into our DNA. It's, we pursue it. That you and I are created to be free beings. You are free to walk away from God. You are free to walk toward God. And as a kid, you might have thought, well, I don't really have any freedom. But you get to be a teenager, and you move into adulthood, and all of a sudden you realize, I have all kinds of freedom. I don't have to listen to my parents. I can do whatever I want to, and some do just that. And you're free to walk away from the people you love, and you're free to be with the people that you, whatever, and you can be, or, or you're free to walk towards the people you love. You're free to do good. You're free to do evil. God himself is free. The heavenly creatures are free. You and I are free. And what if suffering is the shadow side of freedom? What if because we are free, we have the capacity for good, but we also have the capacity for evil? We have the capacity to love, but we also have the capacity to hate. We have the capacity to make good choices, and we have the capacity to make great choices. And of course, the question is, why would God set it up that way? This is really complicated, and it gets messy. Why would he do that? Why would he just make everything just kind of go fantastic for me? Because that's what we want. You just want your day to roll out great, don't you? I mean, you want your life to roll out just the way you have it planned, and the sooner the better. And the response to the question, what if suffering is the shadow side of freedom? The best response I've ever seen on this is that only the free can love. Only the free can love. You cannot make someone love you. Some of you have tried. And you haven't tried by becoming more lovable. You've tried to manipulate. Some of you have loved someone who doesn't love you back. You can't make someone love you. Only the free can love. This year, Lethe and I celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary. We had a great time celebrating. We went on a family vacation. We went on a cruise. It was great. The longer I'm married, and the more, then the more amazed I am that after 25 years, with several billion other men on the planet, she still chooses me. Um, that blows my mind. The miracle of that is that she's lived with me for 25 years, and she still chooses me, and she knows what I'm really like, and she still loves me, and that's what makes it even more incredible. That's the upside of freedom. You know that. You know that. You've experienced that. How does this relate to suffering? How does freedom relate to suffering? We get a great glimpse of this in in the Old Testament in a very uh, famous book, the book of Job. And Job's name, more than any other, in, any other figure in human history, is associated with suffering. Because if I said the suffering of, you would say Job. So we'll start there with unexplainable suffering. We get the explanation. Oh, we get the explanation, but Job never does. So Job is someone who is very successful. He's very rich. He loves God. He's that guy that you look at, and he has kind of everything. 
And in a story that raises as many questions as it answers, we get this view into what happens in the spirit realm in an attempt to destroy Job's life. And this is pretty freaky stuff. So uh, we're going to read from Job chapter 1. I'm going to put the verses on the screen for us. Job chapter 1, this is verse 6. Let's start to read. One day, the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came with them. Now remember, Satan is originally an angel. Remember, everybody in heaven is free to accept or reject. The story, in that story, you can find this story in the book of Isaiah, by the way. Satan was one of the high angels. I know it sounds like some sci-fi fantasy thing, but I'm just telling you what it says. Satan fell, and he used his freedom to rebel against God and to take others with him. You know that dark side that you have? You know those thoughts that come to you? And you're like, where did that come from? They began to rule him. It says his name is the accuser. Look at the next verse, verse 7. Where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan. Satan asked the Lord, I've been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? Did it ever strike you that beings in heaven might be talking about you? I don't know how that works. That's kind of freaky stuff. It's, uh, it's kind of cool. It's beyond my, I don't, I can't really, by the time I think I'm beginning to understand it, I'm like, whoa, I don't really know. It says, he's the finest man in all the earth. He's blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. Verse 9, Satan replied to the Lord, yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. You've always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You've made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. He doesn't love you, God. He loves you for what you've done for him. He loves what you've given him. Satan's a cynic. I've got that side of me. So do you. When I tap into that, I I got more in common with Satan than I do with my Heavenly Father because there's always that roll your eyes, here's the explanation, here you go. We've got that in us. He says, Job has good reason to love you. You've always given him everything, everything he wants, and then you put a wall of protection around him, around his family, around his success, around his stuff. He says, you've made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. Of course he's going to love you. Look what you've done for him, God. Verse 11, but reach out and take away everything he has. He will surely curse you to your face because he doesn't love you. He loves what you've given him. It's a great question to ask ourselves, do I love God for who He is or do I love Him for what He's given me and what He's done for me? You want to do some soul search and dwell on that. Look at this, and this may raise more questions than it answers. Verse 12, All right, you may test Him, the Lord said to Satan. Do whatever you want with everything He possesses, but don't harm Him physically. And that limitation actually changes later on. So Satan left the Lord's presence. Verse 13, One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting at the oldest brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. Your oxen were plowing with the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans raided us. They stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all the shepherds. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with this news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. Your sons and daughters were feasting in their oldest brother's home. Suddenly a powerful wind swept in randomly from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides. 
the house collapsed and all your children are dead. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Can you imagine? You go from having it all and you get four text messages and it's all gone. Oh, and the last message, your phone blows up. Now we're talking about serious loss, right? Some of you have experienced some significant loss. And even though it's not a Job story, on some level you're like, I can identify. I can identify with part of this story. Verse 20. Job stood up and tore his robe in grief. And he shaved his head and fell to the ground. To what? I mean, what would you do if you were Job? You had everything going for you. You had money. You had this amazing family. You had power and influence. What would you do? How would you respond? How have you responded in time of loss? I mean, all of his property, all of his possessions, all of his wealth are wiped out, and all of his children are dead. Scripture says he fell to the ground to do what? To curse God? To ask why? To question God's sovereignty? He fell to the ground to worship. He said these famous words. I came naked from my mother's womb. I'll be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. Some translations say the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Sound familiar? Verse 22. In all this, Job did not sin by blaming God. I'm not going to pretend to... uh, solve this dilemma once for all, uh, but I want to offer a few thoughts on unexplainable suffering. Number one, this is a huge lesson from the book of Job. Number one is never build your life on something that can be taken away from you. We are tempted by so many things. We're tempted by success. We're tempted by love. We're tempted by family. We're tempted by relationships. We're tempted by possessions. We're tempted by status. We're tempted by security. We're tempted by achievement and progress. And we always want to, we're always like, if I, if I can just have this, I'll be content. And it might be something noble, but if I can just have this, I'll be content. I'm not asking for much. I'm not asking for anything that a lot of people don't already have. You might look at your life and think, well, sure, my life's going pretty well. Not, you know, not without its bumps and setbacks, but it's all pretty good. I'm just telling you this lesson from the book of Job. Don't ever build your life on something that can be taken away. Some of you have spent your whole life looking for the person who's going to provide you security, you know, financially and relationally. Some of you have spent your whole life working in a career looking for a level of financial security. Listen, no one and nothing can provide the kind of security that you're looking for. Only Christ can do that. If your whole identity is what you do, or who you are with, and the stuff that you have, you are in a very volatile situation because it can all change in a moment. It can all be gone. And where's your identity then? Around the church, we're always lifting up family, and that's fine. I mean, of course we celebrate family and marriage and kids and grandparents and all that. But never build your life on something that can be taken away. So what's the one thing? There's only one thing that can't be taken away from you, and it's your relationship with Christ. It's who you are because of what Christ has done for you. It's who you are because of how your heavenly Father loves you. Number two, if the suffering is great, the joy must be greater. 
Just hold on, don't throw anything at me yet. Job has immense suffering. Jesus had unmatched suffering. Some of you have been some, through some very intense suffering and loss. The joy on the other side is, is unbelievable because it is hard fought. It is, it's a full, mature joy, and it comes from something really deep. And I'm not suggesting that you dance around going, I'm so thankful for this loss. I'm so glad I went through that. I thought it was bad. It sure felt bad at the time, but it's all good. Yeah, it's great. That's not what I'm talking about. That's, I don't know. That's transparent. Joy on the other side of suffering doesn't look anything like that. Here's the thing. I don't think in this life we often get to see and experience the extent of the joy that God wants us to experience on the other side of suffering. But I guarantee you that in heaven, we will. Number three, ultimately, neither moralism nor cynicism provides an adequate response to suffering. You can can read the rest of the book of Job. It's basically his moralist friends going, well, Job, you seem to be a good guy, but you must have done something wrong. Or at least if you did this, uh, this might happen. Or what about this? Uh, You haven't looked at this. Maybe you did this wrong, and that's why this happened. And they're trying to explain it. His cynical friends are like, God doesn't know. God doesn't care. God's powerless to do anything about it anyway. So what's the point? Suck it up, Job. You know, too bad for you. Number four, suffering leaves you searching for an explanation you may never find. The thing about Job's story is that through the book or on the other side of it, we get to see a bit, a bit of an explanation. But Job never did. He never got an explanation. He died going, I don't know what that was all about. I still don't know what happened back there. And here we are, 3,000 years later, still talking about Job. Verse 5. We look for an answer, but God provides a person. We're like, if I could just get an answer, if I could just get an explanation that is satisfactory, if I could just know why, if I could just know what God was trying to accomplish, why is my life this way? Why is my husband this way? Why is my job turning out this way? Why are my finances this way? Why are my relationships with my kids this way? Why this loss? Why that loss? Why this turmoil? Why this struggle? Why this suffering? We're always looking for an answer, but you know what? Even if you get an answer, I don't think that answer is going to satisfy you. I think God would say, let's just forget the answers. I'm going to give you myself. And that's all Job has left, his relationship with God. And you kind of know this because whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're a seasoned Christian or who knows your Bible inside or out, inside or, or whether you're, you're still trying to find Job, you know, um, when you've been suffering, what's one of the best things that can happen? Not, not Mr. or Mrs. Answer rolling in who can explain away all your suffering for you. And, and it's not that. It's not someone who can roll in and give you some oversimplified trite explanation. No, no. The best response is the people who are with you. It's the people who sit with you. It's the people who sit with you sometimes in silence. It's the people who weep with you and have nothing to say. It's the people who are with you because they don't want you to be alone in your suffering. To that, God says, I am with you. I think that's a place to start processing unexplainable suffering. doesn't give you a lot of answers, um, but it's, it's, it's a place to start. What about explainable suffering? 
This is most of the suffering that we experience. It's like, well, I shouldn't have done that. You know, I shouldn't have said yes to that. Or, you know, I really hurt some people there. Or Jesus, Jesus gave us some great insight into explainable suffering. For some of you, your suffering might be mostly unexplainable, but for, and you're, you're rare. Because for most of us, our suffering is, exp, is explainable. And what do you do with that? Jesus tells us a story, and he tells it three different times in different forms. And we're going to jump in the third telling of the story. Because in my explainable suffering... I want to have some light to just illuminate my situation. And I want to know God's response to my actions that have led to this explainable suffering. What's God think of me in light of the things I've done to get me here? This is from Luke 15. It's a really familiar story. So don't check out, okay? Um, He's telling these stories about, Jesus is talking, telling these stories about lost things and lost people being found. So Luke 15, I'm going to start verse 11. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons, and we're just going to look at one of the sons. It's all we have time for today. And um, the father uh, is the God figure in this story. He sort of stands in for God, okay? And Jesus is saying, if you want to know what my father is like, this is really what we're asking. When we ask, why, if God is so good, why do bad things happen? It's really what we're asking. What is God really like? Because God isn't like what I think he's like, so what is he really like? And, and ultimately, we want to know where we stand with him. Listen to this, verse 12. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. It's like, what? How many of you have ever had the audacity to say to your parents, I noticed you're not dead yet, uh, but pay up. (laughs) Before you dismiss him, this is our story. I mean, whose resources are we using? Whose resources are we spending? Who gave us life anyway? And you would think the responsible father would say, son, that's ridiculous. Go to your room. You're grounded for a month, you know? But look at this. So his father agreed, just agreed, to divide his wealth between his sons. Who does that? I mean, this guy was loaded. He had a big estate, and that's what he did, and that's what God does. I'm living off my share. You're living off your share. If you ever wonder where all your stuff came from, came from God. Verse 13, a few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he sat down with a financial advisor and said, how can I get a 12% return on this for the next 20 years? That's not at all what he did. Nope, there he established a foundation to serve the disadvantaged. No, didn't do that either. It says there he wasted all of his money on wild living. He did what most irresponsible people would do and he wasted it. And I'm not saying that you would do that, but I'm saying most of us would. Verse 14, about the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the men sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. Now, this is getting offensive, because the whole audience here is Jewish. Jesus is Jewish. You don't eat bacon, let alone work with pigs, okay? He's approaching rock bottom. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. A couple of verses back, he's spending his newfound wealth in wild living, whatever that looks like. I mean, he threw the best parties in town. I mean, you know, now where are all of his friends? He's hungry. Where are all of his friends? He says, but no one gave him anything. Ever been there? Friends have left me. Family's left me. This addiction thing, this conflict, this dysfunction, this financial mess. Some of you are there right now. Look what he does, verse 17. When he finally came to his senses, he's like, oh my goodness, what was I thinking? He said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. 
So here's my plan. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. I blew it. So maybe some of you are thinking, okay, I could, I could go back to God. I could do this. I'm with this plan so far. Maybe you gave your life to Christ when you were a little kid or around a campfire when you were a teenager and it's been a decade or it's been 20 years. Or it's been a long time and you're thinking, I've got so much to explain and I've got my arguments all thought out. I wonder how he's going to take me. So in his little prepared speech, he says, please take me on, a hired, on as a hired servant. Verse 20, so he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. And if you're like, well, I've thought about becoming a Christian, but I'm not sure how I'll be received because, wow, you don't know my story. Some of you maybe have fallen away and you're like, I've blown it so badly. I've made so many choices that I know are wrong and I don't know how God's going to receive me. I just don't know. I just want to caution you. Don't, don't jump ahead in your mind to an idea of how God's going to respond to you based on how Christians and churches have responded to you. Because we don't get this right very often, and we, we just mess this up. It says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. How do you see someone coming who's still a long way off? I see someone coming when they pull in my driveway. You know what I think? I think God stands on the porch thinking, is today going to be the day? Is today going to be the day he comes home? Is today going to be the day she comes home? I hope it's today. I gave him the freedom. I love her so much. I hope it's today. And day after day, the father went inside at sundown, brokenhearted, thinking, I guess it's not today. I wonder how much longer. And he just waited. And he waited. And he waited because God's a God of hope. and He's not a cynic. One day the father saw a figure on the horizon and he thought, could that be him? I mean, could that be him? I think it's him. And look what he does. It says, filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. You want to know how God feels about you? Read the rest of the story, verses 21 through 24. The father says, we've got to celebrate. The son of mine was dead and has returned to life. He was lost. Now he's found. We are going to party. And your heavenly father has been waiting for you longer than you've been waiting for him. And he lets you use your freedom. It's like, go ahead, learn your lessons the hard way if that's what you need to do. And the shadow side of, of freedom is suffering. But the upside, oh, the upside. The upside is hope. The upside is love. The upside is we finally have the kind of relationship with our Heavenly Father that He designed and created us to have. So what if suffering is the shadow side of freedom? Oh, I can't explain the unexplainable. But this story gives us insight into the suffering we've caused in our own lives and in the lives of others. If you've ever wondered, what does God think of me now? Stop wondering. What if the long journey away from God is finally over? What if there's enough intellectually for you to go, okay, I, I, I can explore this more. This doesn't satisfy all my questions, but I'm okay with this right now. So what if the long journey away from God is finally over? What's keeping you from coming home to Christ? That's the question I want you to wrestle with. What's keeping you from coming home to your Heavenly Father? I know, uh, I know we haven't addressed every question that was submitted over the last few months, and I know that even the questions that we've addressed, we haven't satisfied your issues with all these topics. 
Uh, remember, we said our goal wasn't to change your mind. The goal was to open our minds. And I know you still have lots of questions. And we'll do this again someday. And I'm not even sure. I'm not even sure we've addressed today's question adequately. I, I'm actually thinking about coming back in a couple of weeks and adding a part two to this one. Thinking about it, if I think it would be helpful. But for today, for now, for this moment in time, I'm just wondering, what if your long journey away from God is finally over? Within arm's reach of just about everybody in the room, there, somewhere in a seat pocket uh, near you, there's a Connect card. And this card has a few things on it, and I just want to give you an opportunity to respond. On the front, there's a place for your name and some contact info, a little bit about yourself and your social security number and your credit score and your blood type and all that kind of stuff. We like to know lots about you. Just kidding. But on the back, there are some things about your experience this morning. And, but I want to draw your attention to the section down in the lower left where it says, there's an option there. It says, today I became a follower of Jesus Christ, and I'd like to know more about my next steps. For some of you, this journey into these big, hairy, audacious questions over the last few weeks has led you to this place where for the first time you're going, yeah, that's it. I'm going to trust Christ. It's it's the best explanation I can find. Haven't had all my questions answered, but I've opened my mind and I'm ready to, to, to become a follower of Jesus Christ. This could be your moment in time. For some of you, you're going to say, well, I'm not sure, but I'd like to know more. I'd like to know more about having a relationship with Christ. I'm not, I'm not there yet, but I'm open to having a conversation. I'd like to ramp it up a little bit. I got some questions. There are some things that I don't think I completely understand. I'd like to know more, so maybe we could have a conversation. That'd be awesome. Uh, thank you for being open. And some of you, you're ready to take some next steps. You want to explore your faith, and you want to explore your questions, and you want to explore and share stories and do this journey together with people just like yourself. We would love to help you make those connections the best that we can. So if you're looking for a place to connect with people and to go a little bit deeper, or maybe you just got some questions about how we do church life at Faith Community, we would love to hear from you. Here's the deal. There's a lot of stuff that I don't know. There are a lot of questions I can't answer very well. There are questions I can't even begin to answer, but here's what I know. What I know is that your Heavenly Father loves you. He loves you more than you can imagine. And today I want to give you an opportunity to take a step toward God. If you're at a place where you're like, that's enough, I've got enough questions answered, I'm done running, I'm satisfied, I want to give you an opportunity to pray a prayer and invite the Lord Jesus Christ to be your Savior. If there's never been a moment in your life where you've embraced Jesus personally, I want uh, to just give you that moment today, and today is a perfect day. If during this message there was something that clicked in you, that dawned on you, that somehow all the other questions kind of filtered away, then perhaps this is the day for you to embrace this message and to be restored into your relationship with your Heavenly Father. So if you find yourself right there right now, I just want to lead you in a prayer, and you can change the words. You can say this out loud if you want. You can say it in your heart. We just pray this. Let's all bow our heads right now. Let's just kind of come to God. Maybe you're in a place, and and this is what you need to say, something like, Heavenly Father, I believe Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world and for my sins. I believe that he was buried. I believe on the third day he was raised from the dead and that he was seen. I embrace him as my personal Savior. I'm trusting him to provide forgiveness for all my sin, my past sin, the sins I'll commit this very day, the sins I'll commit in the future. God, receive me into your family. I'm thrilled to establish this new relationship with my Heavenly Father. In the name of Jesus, our resurrected Savior, amen. Look up at me. We're going we're gonna to play a song, and while the song is playing, this is a good time for you to fill out a Connect card. And on your way out today, just leave it in an offering box or give it to Pastor Bob at the door or give it to me. Um, we'd love to hear about your decision.
Thanks so much for engaging with this series over the last few weeks. Your feedback has been awesome. Um, I think we'll do this again sometime and uh, explore some new questions. So it's been, it's been a lot of fun for me, and, and I appreciate your feedback. We're going to listen to a song, and then we're going to be dismissed. And the kids are going to be probably in the back of the room by the time the song's done. Uh, we're going to do this, play the song that we sing here. Um, and uh, I would encourage you to just kind of stay where you are while this song plays. Don't be moved. Don't you know, get up and move around. Don't leave yet. Um, give us three more minutes. This is a song that we sing here, but today we're just going to let David Crowder lead us. Uh, listen and respond. This is Come As You Are. No 
Father, we're thankful that you've put in us this curiosity, that you've created us to be inquisitive creatures. Thank you that you let us ask our questions, that you aren't uh, offended by us asking some hard questions. Thank you that you've revealed yourself to us through your word and through the work of your Holy Spirit. Thank you that the things that really matter that you've been clear on and that you've given us permission to ask questions. We're thankful, God, that you created us to be free beings and that you've given us an opportunity to really experience our freedom through our relationship with Jesus Christ. So, God, I pray that as we go from this place, that our questions would find their proper place and that we would use our freedom, the freedom found in Jesus, to bring honor and glory to the name of our Heavenly Father. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks. You're dismissed.